0: Glory to Jesus Christ. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus, and we're picking up with step number three, for uh, this section that is about the break with the world, the initial break with the world that the monks undergo. And so we've looked at renunciation, detachment, and then finally exile, of moving away from the familiar things of life. And he described it, if you remember, in the beginning paragraphs as separating oneself from all things to become inseparable from God. And which is exactly what the monks were seeking to do, that to let go of all in order to, uh, to live solely for God and to be immersed uh, deep, as deeply as possible within the life of prayer. And so it's, it's always it's our responsibility to think about, you know, what does this mean for our day-to-day life? What does it mean for a Christian in our day uh, to live in this kind of exile, to be attentive to the things that we are attached to that might prevent us from fully giving ourselves over to God or responding to him in our lives. And uh, we left off with uh, paragraph 16 last time that was focused upon desire And I just turn our eyes back to that for a moment, uh, because as I've mentioned, this is a very important thought within the writing of the fathers. That it is desire that guides and directs our ascetical practice it's our longing for god our love for him that leads us then to seek to discipline ourselves in regards to ordering our desires and appetites of being watchful and attentive to all the things that we are exposed to throughout the course of the day it is what leads us to pray and to seek him out through the scriptures and the writings uh, of the saints and so we want to see uh, exile in light of this as well, that we are, that one would be driven by the desire, the longing for love and the absolute love of God. And these, this is what would lead us to let go of the things that we would so often cling to. And even at times those things that might be good or might be satisfying in many ways, Uh, or natural, you know, in terms of uh, what we would experience within the world in regards to relationships, but nonetheless, uh, keep us from embracing God's will in our day-to-day life. And so again, we're picking up with number 17. John writes, look, beware lest you who cherish attachment to kinsmen be exposed to all the all-engulfing deluge, and you be swept away by the cataclysm of love for the world. Do not be moved by the tears of parents or friends, otherwise you will be weeping eternally. When they surround you like bees, or rather wasps, and shed tears over you, do not for a moment hesitate, but certainly fix the eye of your soul on your past actions and your death, that you may ward off one sorrow by another. Our own, and more correctly, those who are not our own flattering promise to do everything to please us. But their aim is to hinder our splendid course, and then in this way to drag us to their own goal. So, you know, I think we certainly understand this for the the monk, the one who's contemplating or has already left the world, that the pleas of family, the pleas of those who are close to them would uh, draw them back to, to the world, to the comforts of home, and uh, uh, to embrace especially the kind of isolation, the solitude, the stillness, and as well as the comforts of the world. Uh, Those pleas would speak very deeply to the heart, especially when they are the deep relationships of parents, siblings, friends. And so John's counsel is that we sort of fight that sorrow with the idea of another sorrow that is rooted in the reality of death itself and then also of judgment of our own sin. That uh, to keep our focus upon God and his promises as well as upon the reality of the experience of judgment of how we've responded to, to love in our life and the call of love. Uh, this is what can pull us through those moments when we feel ourselves being drawn back to the world. And uh, John will actually spend an entire step in the ladder on the remembrance of death. And uh, he develops more than any of the, of the of the Desert Fathers, this thought of the importance uh, of that, uh, of being mindful of our mortality. That life is short, he, he tells us in another place within the text. And, uh, and to be aware of that brevity then it brings a kind of clarity to the decisions and the choices that we have to make within this life or the sacrifices that we have to make in this life, whether or not we give ourselves over to pursue, you know, the things that are good, but perhaps limited to a number of decades of our life or if we are going to respond to God in a more radical way in terms of his call to serve him and to serve others. Anthony wrote, I think I finally get your admonishment to read things in context. He can't be talking about withdrawing from family like St. Basil's three generations living in harmony, family life and monastic life. You're right. And in fact, he makes a point in the paragraphs to come that he's not speaking of hatred of family or friends. And uh, because what would be the value of that in the sense of uh, one does not uh, come to love God by turning a kind of hatred, at least in the way that we understand it, uh, towards others of being condescending or simply being rejecting. Uh, what John is clear to address here is that uh, that the, the love of God has... Uh, This capacity to call us to something uh, greater. And we've talked about this before in the sense of the difference between the call of the prophet and, in particular, Elijah. We've used this example many times before, calling Elisha, and who wanted to go back and say, you know, kiss his family goodbye and say goodbye to him. And Elijah gives him freedom to do so. And in fact, he says to him, "Who, Who am I to you? Go ahead, you know, say, you know, say goodbye, kiss your parents goodbye, that uh, even though Elijah was called by God was a prophet, that he was a mere man, and so could make no absolute demands upon him. But we see something very different uh, uh, in in Christ and his his calling. In fact, in the Byzantine rite, it's the gospel for this weekend, the uh, calling of the uh, disciples, and where they leave their boat, and, uh, and in one case, leave their boat and their father and in order to follow Christ. And it's always a curious thing to me when I read that gospel, uh, because of the lack of hesitation there, that they drop everything immediately and in and through their encounter with he who is life, he who is love, incarnate, that there is something in the encounter with Him, the experience of Christ, that gives them this freedom to leave their, their job, their livelihood, their families, their home, to follow an itinerant preacher. And, uh, and so, you know, in our day-to-day life, today I was reading St. Mark the Ascetic, and he said there are very specific commandments that God makes of us in our day-to-day life. That we are called uh, to respond to someone who's in need. And so if someone comes to us, we are not to leave them with nothing, that the demands of love call for a response in that moment, and not simply to give out of our abundance, but to give in light of the need of the individual, to let love lead us to respond in that moment. But there are also commandments, he tells us, that are, as com- are comprehensive, that, has a, a, that have, as it were, the dimensions of God, uh, the love of God that are sweeping in their demands. And so we see this in particular in the call of the apostles, come follow me. And, uh, and, uh, and we s- see the response to it. And so what St. Mark the Ascetic is telling us is that there are some things that God, where God is going to call us to respond to him in a way that goes beyond the limits of reason and understanding of logic, that we are responding in faith to something that is greater than ourselves, a love that is greater than ourselves. And we have to be open to that. And I think in many ways, the Desert Fathers become living icons of this kind of responsiveness to God. They say yes in er every aspect of their life and in terms of detaching themselves from all things to be attached to him, to be attached, to give themselves over to love. And, uh, and so when we look at this, we obviously would look at it in the context of our particular vocations, you know, and maybe using even St. Mark the ascetic as our guide there, you know, what are the specific commands of love? that we are responding to in terms of those immediate needs and demands of love of those that we encounter on a day-to-day basis? And what are the, the greater commands of God's love in terms of how we are responding to Him in the call to pray, prayer, in the call to give ourselves over uh, to Him in the circumstances of life that are trying, that are crosses, where our love is being shaped in a cruciform fashion where we have to let go of certainly what reason or our emotions are telling us and simply respond to what we believe God is calling us to. And it's then that I think that we can take hold of what John is telling us here, the the remembrance of death and the remembrance that ultimately all of us come to stand before God. And how is it that we have loved or have not loved in our life. And John of the Cross says that in the end, this is what will be our judge. Have have we loved? And, And in a similar way, I think the monks put this before us as well. Have we loved God and loved others completely? Anything from this first paragraph so far? Number 18 on page 66. For our solitary life, let us choose places where there are fewer opportunities for comfort and ambition, but more for humility. Otherwise we shall be fleeing in company with our passions. Okay, so for the monk in particular, that you you wouldn't choose to seek to live a life of solitude in the busy city or where you're going to have the opportunity to go visit your neighbor every time that you get bored with the silence and you feel the need to talk with someone, you're going to choose an environment that allows you to remain in that stillness and solitude, as well as avoiding the other things that would uh, stoke the fires of the passions. And so choosing one's place and, and the people that one would be around that you do so, not simply for comfort or for ambition, uh, but rather uh, for humility sake. And so, you know, the monks weren't embracing that way of life to impress anyone. I mean, we read about them, their names are, you know, etched within the history of the church. And, uh, and so we know them well especially John Climacus, and we know the the effect that he's had upon the life of thousands, Uh, but, you know, as they entered into that life, they were doing it simply because of their understanding of their need for God, and their need for this particular path, that in their spiritual battle, what was being revealed to them in their hearts about themselves, and about God, led them, drew them to the desert, and so they aren't to go to a place where they are going to be known, or that people are going to seek them out, or or see how that they're how they're living their life. Uh, because that will, you know, that will sort of fill them with a, a sense of pride or having accomplished something. It sort of makes us remember uh, Jesus saying, you know, when you pray, go into your room and pray and quiet. Because if you pray in the middle of the streets and people see you, you have your reward. You know, people know you as being prayerful. The same thing with fasting or almsgiving is to be done in secret. And so in a similar way, John is saying to them, you know, when you choose this path, choose it because of your response to God, you're responding to God and what he's calling you to. Not uh, for the comfort, you know. Being away from others and the distractions of the world, even, or for the ambition of being seen by others as being holy. Uh, because in the end, you're going to take your passions with you. You're going to have to battle with those things. So, why enter into a place where you're going to take with you the very things that give rise to the passions, anyways? And so Maybe when we and I'd be interested to hear what some of you have to say about this. You know, in terms of living this in our own life, uh, with especially with the breakdown sort of of a strong Christian culture or strong culture, even in a more focused way within our parishes or even within the home at times. uh, You know, how is it that one uh, chooses a place or? creates a place where there is this opportunity to respond to God and to respond fully, that we're not focused upon, again simply pleasing our, ourselves or ambition. Uh, and you know so often in our life we're, I think when we are uh, being formed, we're taught to have some particular ambitions about pursuing work, education, things such as that. but often the idea of pursuing God or the life of holiness or virtue, that is not put before us as the most important of things. And if it did, then I think the way that we chose to live our life, even the education that we might pursue, the kind of work that we might pursue, where we would live even too. Uh, Yeah, I remember one, I think it was Father Yvonne, who's often at this group said, uh, we were talking once, he said, you know, people should, when they move someplace, they should look for someplace that's right near the church even in walking distance and you know often people don't think about that but if that is going to be your community if that's going to be the source that's going to be your lifeblood is where uh, your connection with that parish and the, the worship that takes place there uh, being close to that and I know not everybody has that choice uh, but in thinking about one's life you know, where, where do we make this movement uh, are we moving toward comfort, ease, or or are we moving towards those opportunities that are going to draw us closer to God? And that might be humbling because, you know, uh, I could think of a few cities that I just would not want to live in because I think they would be destructive to me as, as a person and uh, just be very difficult to, to live within them. And I think even find... Uh, a kind of environment where the faith could be uh, formed. And in the same way separated, you know, from a worship community could be just as difficult as well. So, any thoughts on this? Rachel said, like the ghetto in Sacramento, Yes, that would be very difficult. Eric Chastain, Eric, you there? Okay. Moved to Texas. You poor man. I, I heard the community in Texas can be pretty good. God's country. Daniel, I would add that it starts at home with the family. I would agree. You know that that this is the the, the soil you know, in which the faith uh, is sown. And it's really there that I think it becomes strengthened. You know, what is emphasized within the family life, that everything begins and ends with God. And so all all the ways that the family would interact with each other how the children would be formed, how the husband and wife engage each other, what how what they bear witness to in regards to their, their children and their own relationship with each other, how they love with each other, how even they argue, you know, their patience with each other, that this would be the in- environment in which, you know, that is formed. And so, you know, there are oh, going to be, and there obviously are a lot of sacrifices made within the context of the, the married life that would mean letting go of other things. You know, when we make a specific choice, and here you're giving yourself over to your spouse, your family, and uh, in, in, this, in the way that one would give one's time and love and attention and care to those uh, with with whom you live and those who you you love is going to be the, the the lens through which you see your life, and that might mean certain sacrifices in terms of one's ambitions or what one would rather be doing. You know, it's you know a, a spouse who would be sitting on the computer playing video games, you know, for five hours in the evening. Obviously, isn't embracing that vocation. You know, as husband or father or out with the buddies every, every night. You know, I think there's things that one would say no to, and maybe even career-wise too. You know, how is the faith fostered, you know, when the, 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 the real focus of one's life and energies revolve around one's labor? And, you know, I understand there are demands, you know, in terms of care of oneself, one's family, that one has to, to work. Uh, but so often, and I'm sure you've all seen this, where it can take over to such an extent that the, the family is pushed out to the, the margins. And we, we have a profound capacity to rationalize. And uh, the same can be true within the life of a priest. You know, you can have fill up your schedule with more and more appointments. You can be preparing for all these different groups, programs, gravitate towards the office or whatever you might be doing to uh, fulfill those things but bypass the chapel and the the reason that you're doing all those things it gets pushed to, to the margins and so eventually becomes fruitless daniel says you can't flee to a place and expect everything to be somehow better that's right there isn't a real chance to run to something if you don't have it with you first like saint seraphim of seraphs acquire the spirit of peace and thousands will be saved. And right, and that sort of takes us back to the text that simply going to the desert without having that desire for God and the desire for the virtues isn't going to make it magically happen. Okay, Joseph Caro. Any thoughts? Oh, there it is. I wonder if this fleeing into the desert in the literal monkish sense is becoming increasingly next to impossible for our current Western civilization without first uh, radical severance from cell phones, internet, Facebook, et cetera. For I'm wondering if even the secondary more modest type of detachment can be fully done without first tempering our use of media, internet, et cetera. I don't know though, just my first impression It's a good question and certainly one that's come to my mind thousands of times over the course of the years because I use the internet a lot. And uh, I also know what a distraction it can be. And it's one of those things. And I don't think we can demonize it because there can be good things that arise out of it, even groups such as this, you know, where it can connect people, but it also can be a profound source of distraction and so one of the things I think that we do look, uh, look at in the monks is a kind of a simpler, simplification of our life. And to be able to look at those, all the things of our life, honestly, and ask if they complicate things, if they add uh, distraction to our life, if they foster or cultivate a kind of busyness that pushes the things that are of greater point, uh, importance to the side that allows the, do the, certain things allow no room for stillness, silence, the solitude that we need, even within our own bedrooms to immerse ourselves in deep prayer. And one of the things that's clear from the monks' writing is that they aren't writing only for monks. If you read the introduction to the Philokalia, he said, you know, this isn't only for those in black robes, that what is being spoken of here, the overcoming of the passions, the ordering of the appetites and desires toward God, unceasing prayer, deep prayer, that all of these things are to be fostered in our life. And because this, we've been called to this radical intimacy with God, ultimately called to that same end, which is deification, to experience oneness with the triune God. And so, you know, in the world, there are so many things that can be very challenging And we have to be willing to to look at them, not uh, again, I think only in the sense of our own sensibilities, our own judgment and reason. And I think this is where reading the fathers and reading the scriptures and having the spiritual direction, frequent confession, where we do examine our minds and our hearts. And And to the extent that we are truly listening to God, to the word that he's speaking to us, in a given moment or set of circumstances? Is my life, am I living my life in such a way that it conforms to the will of God or opens up the possibility for a deep intimacy with him? Or am I gravitating again and again to the things that satisfy myself on an emotional level that allow me to endure day-to-day life or to go about my uh, particular schedule Uh, or to do the things that I think are important, but nonetheless become uh, sort of a form of resistance to opening ourselves to God in a deeper way. Those are the harder questions to ask, because I think, especially with something like TV or the internet, that has become used so much in our work, so much as a source of information, but also so much uh, uh, used as a form of entertainment. And if you remember, I think it was in the Avogatina's group, we talked about entertainment as meaning in between, you know, we're put into this in-between state between reality and uh, fantasy. And so we're sort of living in this virtual reality if we're lost in the technology of our day. And there are a lot of things beyond the internet that we can get lost in. But, uh, you know, in our day to day life, do, do we have the freedom and the honesty to ask the question? And so I think even before simplifying our life, we really have to slow things down within our minds and our hearts to ask the questions that need to be asked. And, you know, this is, I think, where humility comes in, truthful living is would be the meaning of it we you know are we really living in accord with how god has created us okay. eric chastain did you have a comment or question i moved to texas to work at a catholic university and live near the daily Latin mass guarding my mind and heart from secular people reduce temptations to anger and worldly ambition right and so you know These are sometimes the the decisions I think we feel called to make, and I understand it more and more, and I think being a parent in our day must be a terrifying prospect, uh, just because there are so many sources of influence, and not that that hasn't always been true but it seems rather frightening to me. And I, I don't know if that's just my own sensibilities, but it seems like there's a constant wave of things that are a source of confusion or that would really malform the mind and the heart. And so what are parents to do, or what are couples to do uh, when, you know, even prior to having children thinking about where, where do we want to place ourselves uh, that we, as a couple and as a family, can flourish. And, uh, and you know, maybe this is further out, you know, uh, from the cities at this point, or, you know, as I said, closer to the church communities and, and things such as that, that allows that to emerge. And uh, again, you know, I don't want to demonize things. You know that we would use i think the church has called us to engage the world but as we here in the fathers were to do so in such a way that we don't jeopardize what is going on with our within our own hearts that we don't put ourselves in harm's way spiritually so we aren't indiscriminately to thrust ourselves in into certain things uh sister mary of the divine savior uh, in our community, a small group of us are living a more contemplative life, and it has been a very rocky road. We are not monastic, but are called to live the life of our Blessed Mother in the cenacle. We do three hours of adoration, and one of them is 12 a.m. for 12 a.m. for priest, and another sacrifice is not eating meat in the convent. Also, doing the full divine office. Only time will tell if God will bring vocations to live us vocations to live this way of life. To try and live a more contemplative life in today's world is a challenge. It is. And, you know, I think this is why reading someone like uh, St. John Climacus is important. You know, that, again, shows us not only the monastic life, but what what it means to live a life in Christ and for Christ. What What would be the contours of that, regardless of where we live? And you know, the, the kind of prayer that you are speaking about here uh, is shaped by a particular role and shaped by that desire. And, uh, and I think for all of us as Christians you know, given by virtue of our baptism and understanding of who and what we've become in Christ, again, this should be the thing that we are engaged in as, as well. in in shaping a role of life for ourselves that is going to foster uh, a kind of responsiveness to God. And whether we are living in the married state or single or or life of a priest or religious, I think we are are called to, to look at what is the priority here. And that might mean setting aside specific things that really does radically simplify our life. And for those who are hooked on internet, it might mean, you know, the, the line from the scripture if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. And so there are certain things that we might have to cut out of our life that mean a certain loss to us uh, and f- make us feel like, well, we, we can't function maybe in the same way that others do in society. But, uh, you know better, as it were, to enter into heaven with one hand than with two hands to enter into hell. That better to make these sacrifices for that which is the greater good and the perfect love. Anthony and Daniel Allen, Ambrose, I think you put something. I'm reminded of Pope John Paul II. Be not afraid. Lead, lead out, lead out into the deep, or is that leap out into the deep? Um- Yes, you know, I think we aren't to be driven by fear. And I think that's why I wanted to start with that previous paragraph about desire or longing for God, that fear is not going to be the greatest guide for us in the sense of being terrified of the things of the world. It is our love for God and our understanding of His love for us that is to be the thing that draws us forward and gives us clarity. And so in any choice that we make here is a response to that, that love. Anthony and, or uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Anthony, okay. You put yours up there. Uh, In the book, In Bed of Procrustes, Philosophers Walk, They Do Not Run. He is an Orthodox Christian who takes the spirit of Orthodoxy into the academic risk analysis, economic work. He's right, God is not speaking in an urgent panic. Be a lover of wisdom, walk, enjoy, and contemplate. Yes, very good. Uh, uh, Thomas Merton said something similar that hurry ruins both poets and saints. That when you know, when one is uh, like poet is going to be filled with wonder of the world around. It's going to speak uh, to the heart. And similarly for the Christian, you know, it's the wonder of the mystery that has been revealed to us in Christ that guides us. And so uh, we have to be able to open ourselves up to that mystery, to linger in it and allow ourselves to be drawn forward by it rather than shaping it in accord again with our own sensibilities. And this is true within the religious and the spiritual life as a whole too. We we will want to do with that what we do with so many other things, shape it in accord with our own mindset, rather than allowing God to call us to follow him in the particular way that he desires for us. And so a kind of haste there that isn't on the level of of, uh, reflection here that we see in the text can simply lead us along uh, a kind of false path where we spend a lot of energy and attention only to find that we really have not been pursuing God in the, the way that we imagined. Daniel Allen.
1: All right, I'm struggling with the, okay, the typing. Go ahead, speak it. <laughs> Can I read it? I think I yep, accidentally go sent ahead. it to Sister, with, and I meant to send it to everyone. So uh, what I what I meant to send was, uh, it's this isn't as good a source as a saint my favorite uh, bands is a folk rock band, the Avid Brothers. Mm-hmm. And they have a song with a refrain that goes like this. Uh, the weight of lies will bring you down and follow you to every town because nothing happens here that doesn't happen there. Mm-hmm. So when you run, make sure you run to something and not away from because lies don't need an airplane to chase you anywhere. And right. So the point I share, like I'm sharing a random song lyric. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the point of running to someone you know, mm-hmm. God, and not simply running away from the world is, mm-hmm. is kind of the the hinge on this. Um, you know, because a philosopher can run from the world and live a virtuous and ascetic life, but without purpose. But the Christian can run to someone, and I think the subtle difference is, you know, you can do that wherever you find yourself, and whether you're in a family, a city, a countryside, or a monastery, it, it, the secret isn't thinking that if your circumstances were different, you could do it. It's doing that within your circumstances. Right. Sorry, I couldn't figure out the message part. No, very good. And, you know, we
0: do have to be careful. And I think this is why John puts things in the way that he does, that we, we can run off without asking ourselves questions, necessary questions. And then the next uh, step on obedience, he makes that very clear. You know that you have to understand what it is that you're what that means for you in your day-to-day life if you're going to lead, lead lead it and uh in past groups we've talked about the word infatuation you remember that false light and uh the idea of a false light comes from traveling in the desert actually where a person might be lost and they'll see light off in the distance and they'll make their way towards it thinking they're finding safety and warmth uh, but it's actually an optical illusion created in the desert and so they can be traveling all night long and never reach that destination and so you know saint john cassian in his conferences saying that we have to have this immediate goal in the spiritual life and for him it's purity of heart that we seek through the the struggle with the passions in order that we might come to see god and the things of god that we might pursue not the false light but he who is the true light of the world and that we might find healing in and through that and uh and so you know tying in with daniel's song here or the song of this great band uh i can't remember the name he said of uh, of it but uh that how important that is that you know if we are simply running off in this one direction. We, we still are taking ourselves and we want to be not running from something, but to something. iPhone, you have a, a question or a comment?
2: Oh, this is Mark Cummings. I'm sorry. Hi, Mark.
0: How are you? IPhone?
2: <laughs> Good, how are you? <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, and I tried to type it, it didn't come across too well. That's okay. um, So, You know the letter of Diogenetus came to mind, and in particular chapter five, where he talks about, you know, Christians are distinguished from other men by their country, language, nor customs, but they inhabit cities of their own. They use a particular way of speaking, Mm -hmm. um, or they do not inhabit cities of their own or use Mm -hmm. a particular way of speaking. So they're spread out and among people. I've had people. I've had friends who have moved out of state, um, as people are doing in Illinois, um, for probably very good reason, but um, who have encouraged me to, you know, leave the state. And I, you know, my argument is is that we need good Christians among the heathens as much as anything. And I refer back to that letter, you know, and say, "Hey, um, we're meant to live, and we have historically lived among." you know those who need and so that came to mind Mm -hmm. um, when you said that you know and I also made a drastic move I was in corporate life for a long time and decided to leave and I ultimately now work for the Catholic Church which is which is great uh, because I can I can speak the language freely and you know speak of God freely and it's awesome it's still hard work but (laughs) but it but it is, so. You anyway, from one
0: corporate life to another corporate life. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah,
2: in a way, yes, but it's very nice to work with, you know, a, a very good, you know, Catholic community, so. Right. It is cool,
0: yeah. That's right, yeah. Right, you know, I, I think just to, we'll get back to the text here, but I think the, the point that is being made here is this w- willingness to really place God at the center of all things and that might mean an exile you know whether it's from place or from certain things in our our life or a way of life that we've led for maybe decades in order to respond to God's call there has to be a willingness to do that and uh and that the call of God is not like the call of anything else within this world And we might be surprised about the path that he calls us to walk upon. Okay, so let's pick up with another paragraph here. Number 19, hide your noble birth and do not glory in your distinction, lest you be found to be one thing in word and another in deed. And so, you know, certainly the monk is not, and again, entering into the desert to reveal then, you know, his heritage and his background, you know, that he comes from royalty or that he has, you know, a great education. Uh, the love to be unknown uh, becomes very important. And, you know, Philip Neary uh, incorporated this into his teachings as well. The, You know, the hidden life, the love to be unknown, in order, again, that Christ might become the center of all things in one's life and and that in people's encounter with us, that 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 is who we would be leading them to, that uh, we are not putting ourselves forward uh, to be seen. And so like John the Baptist, we, w- we would have within our heart, he must increase, I must decrease and uh And so I think what John is saying here is very important for us. You know, it has nothing to do with noble birth, And Paul echoes this in his writing, too, you know, that most of the people that he had engaged, in fact, had come from nothing. Uh, But in the end, all that was in this world, and he says even from his own life, is rubbish, you know, in comparison to what life in Christ has offered him. And so noble birth or even for Paul, you know, he was a Pharisee by training, you know, and so, you know, knew the scriptures well. And yet all of that in comparison to what he had experienced in Christ seemed as nothing. And, you know, Paul's life wasn't an easy one. You know, at this point he was being stoned and whipped and every other thing. And, and so not only did he, he, had, he had no nobility in the eyes of others, he was seen as an enemy. Number 20, no one has surrendered himself to exile to such an extent as that great man who heard go forth out of thy land and out of thy kindred and out of the house of thy father. And then he was called into a barbarous land that spake another tongue. So it's not clear who he's speaking of here. It's, it's Abraham. Uh, and that Abraham is called by God you know, to step out into the unknown, to let go of everything that he knew to be familiar in a very similar way to the apostles and their calling. And to trust God that even though he was being led into, as John describes it, a barbarous land, that God was entering into a relationship with him and was making a promise to him, even within the call itself, but would become much more specific. And, uh, and so Abraham becomes then the model for this kind of exile, this willingness to leave the familiar and the known. And, you know, there are many different times in, I think, our life where we come to experience that, where something shifts and, uh, you know, in the circumstances of our life and we find ourselves going down a different path that we imagined for ourselves or even had been on for years and uh and it can be a kind of frightening thing that does require a kind of abandonment to the providence of god a willingness to allow him to lead us into that which is unfamiliar and unknown in order that he might become more known to us that we might rest more upon him and his grace and so come to know him Uh, at the sacrifice of the things that were familiar or gave us a sense of security and stability. And and that's an important thing to see because I think we can fall into desolation when those things come in that turn our lives upside down and really leave us in, in moments where we have no idea where our life is going to go or where God is leading us. And uh, and find ourselves walking in a kind of darkness. And this in, too, can be a kind of exile, you know, not to to grab and reach to the things that are familiar, that offer an immediate comfort to us, but again, to cling to God in the midst of, of this state in our life. So I think our natural defense in that is to, seek to reach out to those things that make us comfortable, rather than remaining in the silence and in that state of unknowing and listening to God. What is God telling me through perhaps this upheaval in my day-to-day life or my world? Ren. The figure of Abraham is beautiful, flesh, a beautiful fleshing out of what we spoke about a couple of groups ago, that this kind of exile is an exile to, not from. The figure of Joseph is one that perhaps illustrates the kind of opposite, an exile from that God works with in order to effect good. Right, excellent. An exile that will, in fact, lead to the slavery of the entire people of God. But Abraham embraces exile for the sake of covenant with God, and is thus a far superior example. Yes, you know because you're right. You know that the the circumstances exiled Joseph because of uh, what his brothers did, and that there was a, a kind of consequence to this. That you're right; it leads to this slavery. That ultimately, then Joseph is the 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 instrument of their salvation, as it were, and. Uh, Uh, But with Abraham, you're right, it is this moving toward God and this relation, entering into this relationship with God that would, you know, affect everyone who would follow. And it was this sort of pure example of walking by faith. And we see it happen again in his life, especially after the birth of his son, you know, where he's confronted with. You know the, the thought of letting go of what he, he thought was going to perpetuate his line, and and so Abraham, you know, always remains for us this this very powerful example of this, as you said, exile too, that involves really abandoning ourselves in faith to God and trusting ourselves to Him that He might guide us. Very good. Okay. 21 sometimes the Lord has brought more glory to the man who's gone into exile after the manner of this great patriarch, but if glory is God given, yet it is excellent to divert it from oneself with the shield of humility, and so it's it's interesting he's telling us that even exile can be uh, become for us in our sin, a source of pride that ah okay. I've, you know, I'm following God, you know, it's sort of the, the whole Peter statement, we've, we've left everything, we've left family, everything to follow you, what do we get? And uh, it's always, I always find that to be a, a humorous little story within the gospel. Uh, and, you know, then Christ tells them, you know, oh, of course, you'll gain family and friends and support and homes and, uh, but with persecution. You know, you're going to get this along with it. And uh, so we can have that spirit overcome us at times, you know, where we become self-conscious again about ourselves in that relationship with God. The focus turns back in on ourselves and what we are doing. And so even though the exile might be hard, we can take pride in the fact that it's hard and that we're doing it, that we're responding to God. And this was always this was a perpetual danger of the ascetics, that their focus could shift onto the asceticism itself, the heroic life that they were, lead, you know, that they were leading or all the things that they had left, uh, thinking in a sense that these things in and of themselves made them holy rather than being called to it by the grace of God and that those things bearing fruit in their life by the grace of God. But it's, you know, the fathers always push us to that furthest limit, that even exile, something like exile could be become for us a matter of pride. And so humility always has to, to be our shield. When men or demons praise us for our exile, as for some great ex- exploit or achievement, then let us think of him who for our sake was exiled from heaven to earth. And we shall find that throughout all eternity, it is impossible for us to make return for this. So it becomes impossible for us for all eternity to make return for the incarnation and the exile of the incarnation, that Christ taking upon himself our flesh uh this self-emptying that takes place taking the form of a slave or servant always puts us in the position of gratitude and the response that we make to God is being one of gratitude that even if we had all eternity to give ourselves over to exile in the fullest possible measure it could not be a return for what God has given to us And so our perpetual attitude is gratitude, humility, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Anthony, the book of Jasher has a story of Abraham, uh, was one of the few righteous worshipers of God among the people around the Tower of Babel, and God called him away. Christ's exile was also out of love, right? So it was to fulfill the father's will, to fulfill the will of the, of the other in love. And uh, you know this is, our, well, this is always our standard in life. It's Christ that our exile or our self-empting, whatever it might be, is to be out of love and uh, to give ourselves out of love without a kind of self-focus. My food is to do the will of my father in heaven. And uh, this is to be our, our constant, constant thought. Okay. Number 23. Attachment either to some particular relative or to strangers is dangerous. Little by little, it can entice us back to the world and completely quench the fire of our compunction it is impossible to look at the sky with one eye and at the earth with the other, and it is equally impossible for anyone to expose his soul to danger, who has not separated himself completely both in thought and body from his own relatives and others. So, challenging. Maybe we should just stop there for the night. I don't know that was <laughs> But the the idea of keeping one eye on heaven and one eye on earth or having one foot in the world or one foot in the kingdom, that this is always something that we try to do. And I think part of the demons work upon us is to uh, magnify the thing, the value of the things of this world, including the things that are good to the point that they can distract us from from God himself. And so they magnify them to such an extent uh, that they are the only thing that we see, and God is I, either shrinks in our uh, in our mind's eye, or he is blocked out of our field of vision altogether. It's similar to seeing the the speck in the one's neighbor's eye when you have a log in your own eye. You see sin everywhere in everybody else because you have this log in your eye, and you're the only thing that you're seeing is a log, but it's in your your own eye, that your own sin blocks the field of vision from seeing the good in other, but also seeing God. And so, in a similar way, you know, that the things of this world and even the good things. Uh, not seen as coming from God and as gifts of God or of magna, being magnified to such an extent that they take the place of God can lead us away from, away from him. And often in talking with people about the spiritual life, uh, we, we often don't realize that even our virtues have to be perfected by the grace of God that there can be a lot of ourselves even in and selfishness in the things that are good about us that have to be purified by, by the grace of God over time. And uh, and so even the love of family and the, the love of others that God has placed in our life has to be perfected by the grace of God. So that if God were to call us away from that relationship Both that individual and we ourselves would be able to respond. It doesn't mean that we would respond without sorrow or the experience of loss, but that we would be able to respond and say yes to God, knowing that his care ultimately is for the salvation of all. And so whether it's one who's being left or the one who's leaving, you know, that uh, the 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 blessing of God is to be found in it. The providence of God is to be found in it, one way or another. And it's hard, you know. I've I've mentioned before the 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 movie about Saint Charbel. His feast is coming up next month, but it was very difficult, and it was portrayed really beautifully in the movie about him, uh, his entering into the monastery. That there, you know, was a deep attachment there that existed, you know, between he and his family and his mother's love for him in particular, and uh, and there, there was a deep religiosity within the family too, but his leaving to enter into the, the monastic life was heartbreaking, and enough to bring her to the monastery, begging to see him and begging him to come home, just be a priest. Here in the town, you know, why do you have to embrace the the monastic life. And so we we see in a very concrete way, the the perfecting of the virtue in both of them, you know, in terms of his response to God and his call, but also the perfection of the mother's faith, and her willingness to let go of what was most precious to her, her. Her beloved son. Any thoughts or comments? Ooh, so hard. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yes, I think that's, you know, when we're confronted with these things, I think that's pretty much the most that you could say that, yes, that's that's very hard. And I think it's only when that trust in the providence of God deepens over the course of time that I think we can sort of see through the tears even, or in, in see through the loss. And this is, I think where the virtue of hope in particular uh, comes into play that we, we can see through those losses to the promises of God, the promise of, uh, promises of life and love. And so we might feel the weight of those losses, but are carried forward. By, by the greater promise that he's made to us. And we see the struggle, you know, certainly from Abra- Abraham on, you know, that this is what was required, you know, to, and the willingness to, to let things go, to be able to trust in God's promises even when he couldn't see it, or even when the most radical thing was being asked of him, you know, to give me your only son, and which he does not ultimately uh, demand of him. It's what foreshadows, what points to the gift of his own son to us. But, uh, But nonetheless, Abraham was able to see through that pain. Any thoughts or comments on any of the things that we've looked at? Now, you know, don't worry, if you walk away from this and you think, oh, forget it, or this is too much, or I've had enough. Step three's taken me to my limit. I don't know if I could move to step four on obedience. Uh, you know, just hang in there. Uh, I think sometimes we have to be willing to hold things within our minds and, you know, to be able to unpack them and to be uncomfortable with them. I you know I think if we were comfortable with this I think there would be a problem with all of you. If like everybody was here shaking their head and saying all right I, I I'm with you there father david or I'm with john I'd, I'd be sort of wondering about it because uh, it's you know a lot of it can be heart wrenching and when we're talking about letting go here of the things that are familiar dear to us that we love you know Anyone who has a heart is going to struggle with that. And this is a call to a kind of radical trust, faith, and love in God. And so one reading of it is not going to do it. I think this comes out of a lot of prayer. So Eric Chastain. Exile is awesome. Nah, I don't believe it. Daniel's hang in there. It only gets more uncomfortable. But I think that's more, more the case when we get to obedience and penance. Uh, a little, a little bit more challenging. But you know, they, they do shine a light on something that I found. You know, even after thirty years, I read this th- over thirty years ago, and it's still jarring to the sensibilities. And every time I read it, and there is something that. Is, I think, does awaken something within our hearts, you know, to make us look, to see what's there, and to make us think about our relationship with God and how that differs from even the the best of relationships that we have within this world, and that the love that he offers and the love that he calls for is different than what we can understand, you know, simply with the mind. it It only comes through what is revealed to us and then through the gift of faith, Carol Nye paper How do we not seem indifferent while letting go? Yeah, you know that's right. You know, I think this is why I brought up the the idea of tears or sense of loss. You know, and the example of Charbel's mother and Charbel himself—that it wasn't indifference. You know, I think indifference betrays and can betray a kind of lack of love or in a defense again in a kind of defensive posture a kind of trying uh, to protect oneself from the pain and as Christians we're not stoics in fact we feel things and should feel things more than others in, in in a more honest way than others because uh, we are looking at it, th- again, with the kind of clarity of vision that comes through faith. We see, should see things through purity of heart with a greater clarity. And so when we see evil within the world, or you know the things that we've heard that have happened within the church, or the shooting of these children, or that have just, has just taken place, that these things that we see within the world, as well as the things that we see within our own hearts, should should lead us to to weep when we we see what they are in reality and christ himself shows us this you know when he's confronted with you know death the death of his friend lazarus he weeps and the response of the crowd is see how he loved him and so to remember as christians that we're not stoics and we're not you know to put on this hard shell as though we're unfeeling in the face of the sacrifices that we have to make. And I think sometimes when we hear even the stories of the the martyrs and the things that they underwent, you know, sometimes those can get sort of sensationalized where we lose sight maybe of the sacrifices there that they made throughout the whole course of their life that deepen their faith, but also with the trials that they underwent in their life, that somehow it can seem easy to us when we read a story about them or that they were able to do this, that they had such a faith that they, you know, didn't feel the flames or, or, you know, laughed with a sense of humor in the midst of torture. And, you know, but I think that can give this kind of false impression, you know, that there as human beings and as men and women of faith, we see things, we feel things with a greater, greater clarity. Like Mary is the, perfect example of this we again we think maybe in her purity that she might be above you know or, you know the, the pain you know or be able to enter into that or accept that but she's told right from the beginning a sort of sorrow shall pierce through your heart as well that she experiences the sufferings of the cross precisely in and through her purity of heart and her virtue in a more powerful way that she participates in the redemptive work of Christ in a way that might be hard for us to understand. And so often it's because we put her up, you know, on this pedestal or make her a kind of plaster statue, not realizing that she was a woman of faith. And that as a woman of faith, that she experienced these things on the, the, you know, the very deepest of levels. And I think we can even think that of Christ too, you know, the suffering of those hours, you know, from the you know, his, uh, his being lashed to then dying upon the cross. We, we think of that in a very limited, narrow fashion, rather than his taking upon himself the suffering of the, of the world and our suffering and the burden and the weight of our sin. Daniel, and you could wrap us up for the evening. I don't mean to sanitize this, and I don't think this does, does, does that, but I keep returning to letting go of our own will. The monk being called to the desert had to abandon his will for comfort, family, and familiarity. But every day we have to let go of our own will and embrace noisy kids and a lack of silence or work that doesn't fulfill a personal sense of gaining and what has meaning and time for oneself. My example is obviously more aligned with having a lot of small children, but I think that to me is letting go of the will that the monk is also doing. Exactly. You know, I think that's, you know, why we would want to bring up and why I did the family life that, you know, the choice of entering into that when you have an inconsolable child. Or multiple children hanging off of you. Uh, one young woman posted this picture online. She said, I found myself thinking about how many hands were on me. She has like six kids. And so she takes this picture of herself that looks sort of not exasperated, but you could see the fatigue from the heat. But her kids think about her kids all hanging on her and doing that with love, you know, being attentive to each one of them means that we turn the attentiveness off of the self. And so you're right. I mean, I think that that the desert is within the heart and our willingness to say yes to God in those circumstances and yes to those that he's placed in our life. And I think for one who's in that role, uh, the, the necessity of prayer is every bit as great because the the heroic faith and love that is needed and the heroic patience is great and so to to you know have what you need to love them in this unconditional way is something that we don't do by strength of will or by natural virtue you know there's a difference between being a good father and being a Christian father, you know, who is strengthened by the love and the grace of God. Because it's not only being patient or putting up or enduring with the you know, screaming children, you know, it's, it's offering something more that communicates uh, a godly love. Okay, any final comments? So don't be afraid to bring stuff back next week, saying, you know, I read this over again, I have real problems with this, or to send an email and never never hold back, okay? okay. So why don't we close there? And uh, someone asked last week about, you know, if you're using an iPad and it's inconvenient to type, I think it was Angela. Uh, ask that that don't hesitate you know just to put up your hand and ask the question i think we, again we want to keep the group fluid so that we can read more of the text but if you're trying to type it out and can't on the ipad just say it out loud okay All right. okay so this closes always with the our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen, amen. our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with
2: your spirit. And may
0: God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Peace.
2: Thanks be Thank you God.
0: God. Thank you all.